Section 18 of London Labour and the London Poor, Volume 2, by Henry Mayhew. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Of the Street Buyers The persons who traverse the streets or call periodically at certain places to purchase articles which are usually sold at the door or within the house are, according to the division I laid down in the first number of this work, street buyers. The largest, and in every respect the most remarkable body of these traders, are the buyers of old clothes, and of them I shall speak separately, devoting at the same time some space to the street Jews. It will also be necessary to give a brief account of the Jews generally, for they are still a peculiar race, and street and shop trading among them are in many respects closely blended. The principal things bought by the itinerant purchasers consist of waste paper, hair and rabbit skins, old umbrellas and parasols, bottles and glass, broken metal, rags, dripping, grease, bones, tea leaves and old clothes. With the exception of the buyers of waste paper, among whom are many active, energetic and intelligent men, the street buyers are of the lower sort, both as to means and intelligence. The only further exception, perhaps, which I need notice here, is that among some umbrella buyers there is considerable smartness, and sometimes in the repair or renewal of the ribs and so on, a slight degree of skill. The other street purchasers, such as the hair-skin and old metal and rag buyers, are often old and infirm people of both sexes, of whom, perhaps by reason of their infirmities, not a few have been in the trade from their childhood, and are as well known by sight in their respective rounds as was the long-remembered beggar in former times. It is usually the lot of a poor person who has been driven to the streets, or has adopted such a life when an adult, to sell trifling things, such as are light to carry, and require a small outlay, in advanced age. Old men and women totter about offering lucifer matches, boot and stay laces, penny memorandum books, and such like. But the elder portion of the street folk I have now to speak of do not sell, but buy. The street seller commends his wares, their cheapness and excellence. The same sort of man, when a buyer, depreciates everything offered to him, in order to ensure a cheaper bargain, while many of the things thus obtained find their way into street sale, and are then as much commended for cheapness and goodness as if they were the stock-in-trade of an acute slop advertisement-monger. And this is done sometimes by the very man who, when a buyer, condemned them as utterly valueless. But this is common to all trades." Of the street buyers of rags, broken metal, bottles, glass, and bones. I class all these articles under one head, for on inquiry I find no individual supporting himself by the trading in any one of them. I shall therefore describe the buyers of rags, broken metal, bottles, glass, and bones as a body of street traders, but take the articles in which they traffic, seriatim pointing out in what degree they are, or have been, wholly or partially, the staple of several distinct callings. The traders in these things are not unprosperous men. 
the poor creatures who may be seen picking up rags in the street are street finders and not buyers. It is the same with the poor old men who may be seen bending under an unsavoury sack of bones. The bones have been found or have been given for charity and are not purchased. One feeble old man whom I met with, his eyes fixed on the middle of the carriageway in the old St. Pancras Road, and with whom I had some conversation, told me that the best friend he had in the world was a gentleman who lived in a large house near the Regent's Park, and gave him the bones which his dogs had done with. "'If I can only see his self, sir,' said the old man, "'he's sure to give me any coppers he has in his coat pocket, and that's a very great thing to a poor man like me. Oh, yes, I'll buy bones if I have any halfpence, rather than go without them, but I pick them up, or have them given to me mostly.' The street buyers, who are only buyers, have barrows, sometimes even carts with donkeys, and as they themselves describe it, they buy everything. These men are little seen in London, for they work the more secluded courts, streets and alleys, when in town, but their most frequented rounds are the poorer parts of the populous suburbs. There are many in Croydon, Woolwich, Greenwich and Deptford. It's no use, a man who had been in the trade said to me, such as us calling at fine houses to know if they've any old keys to sell. No, we trades with the poor. Often, however, they deal with the servants of the wealthy, and their usual mode of business in such cases is to leave a bill at the house a few hours previous to their visit. This document has frequently the royal arms at the head of it, and asserts that the firm has been established since the year blank, which is seldom less than half a century. The handbill usually consists of a short preface as to the increased demand for rags on the part of the papermakers, and this is followed by a liberal offer to give the very best prices for any old linen or old metal, bottles, rope, stair rods, locks, keys, dripping, carpeting, and so on. In fact, no rubbish or lumber, however worthless, will be refused and generally concludes with a request that this bill may be shown to the mistress of the house, and preserved, as it will be called for in a couple of hours. The papers are delivered by one of the firm, who marks on the door a sign, indicative of the houses at which the bill has been taken in, and the probable reception there of the gentleman who is to follow him. The road taken is also painted by marks before explained. See Volume 1 pages 218 and 247. These men are residents in all quarters within 20 miles of London, being most numerous in the places at no great distance from the Thames. They work their way from the suburban residences to London, which of course is the mart, or exchange, for their wares. The reason why the suburbs are preferred is that in those parts the possessors of such things as broken metal and so on cannot so readily resort to a marine store dealer's as they can in town. I am informed, however, that the shops of the marine store men are on the increase in the more densely peopled suburbs. Still, the dwellings of the poor are often widely scattered in those parts, and few will go a mile to sell any old thing. They wait in preference, unless very needy, for the visit of the street buyer. A good many years ago, perhaps until thirty years back, rags, and especially white and good linen rags, were among the things most zealously inquired for by street buyers, and then threepence a pound was a price readily paid. 
Subsequently, the paper manufacturers brought to great and economical perfection the process of boiling rags in lye and bleaching them with chlorine, so that colour became less a desideratum. A few years after the peace of 1815, moreover, the foreign trade in rags increased rapidly. At the present time, about 1,200 tonnes of woollen rags and upwards of 10,000 tonnes of linen rags are imported yearly. These 10,000 tonnes give us but a vague notion of the real amount. I may therefore mention that, when reduced to a more definite quantity, they show a total of no less than £22,400,000. The woollen rags are imported the most largely from Hamburg and Bremen, the price being from £5 to £17 the tonne. Linen rags, which average nearly £20 the tonne, are imported from the same places, and from several Italian ports, more especially those in Sicily. Among these ports are Palermo, Messina, Ancona, Leghorn and Trieste, the Trieste rags being gathered in Hungary. The value of the rags annually brought to this country is no less than £200,000. What the native rags may be worth, there are no facts on which to ground an estimate. But supposing each person of the 20 million in Great Britain to produce one pound of rags annually, then the rags of this country may be valued at very nearly the same price as the foreign ones, so that the gross value of the rags of Great Britain, imported and produced at home, would in such a case amount to £400,000. From France, Belgium, Holland, Spain and other continental kingdoms, the exportation of rags is prohibited, nor can so bulky and low-priced a commodity be smuggled to advantage. Of this large sum of rags, which is independent of what is collected in the United Kingdom, the Americans are purchasers on an extensive scale. The wear of cotton is almost unknown in many parts of Italy, Germany and Hungary. And although the linen in use is coarse, and compared to the Irish, Scotch or English, rudely manufactured, the foreign rags are generally linen, and therefore are preferred at the paper mills. The street buyers in this country, however, make less distinction than ever, as regards price, between linen and cotton rags. The linen rag buying is still prosecuted extensively by itinerant gatherers in the country and in the further neighbourhoods of London, but the collection is not to the extent it was formerly. The price is lower, and owing to the foreign trade, the demand is less urgent. So common too is now the wear of cotton, and so much smaller that of linen, that many people will not sell linen rags, but reserve them for use in case of cuts and wounds, or for giving to the poor neighbours on any such emergency. This was done doubtlessly to as great, or to a greater extent, in the old times. But linen rags were more plentiful then, for cotton shirting was not woven to the perfection seen at present, and many great country housewives spun their own linen sheetings and shirtings. A street buyer of the class I have described, upon presenting himself at any house, offers to buy rags, broken metal or glass, and for rags especially there is often a serious bargaining, and sometimes, I was told by an itinerant street-seller, who had been an ear-witness, a little joking not of the most delicate kind. For coloured rags, these men give a halfpenny a pound, or a penny for three pounds. 
for inferior white rags, a halfpenny a pound, and up to a penny halfpenny. For the best, tuppence the pound. It is common, however, and even more common, I am assured, among masters of the old rag and bottle shops than among street buyers, to announce tuppence or threepence, or even as much as sixpence for the best rags. But somehow or other, the rags taken for sale to those buyers never are of the best. To offer sixpence a pound for rags is ridiculous, but such an offer may be seen at some rag shops. The figure six, perhaps, crowning a painting of a large plum pudding as a representation of what may be a Christmas result, merely from the thrifty preservation of rags, grease, and dripping. Some of the street buyers, when working the suburbs or the country, attach a similar illustration to their barrows or carts. I saw the winter placard of one of these men, which he was reserving for a country excursion as far as Rochester, when the plum pudding time was a-coming. In this pictorial advertisement, a man and woman, very florid and full-faced, were on the point of enjoying a huge plum pudding, the man flourishing a large knife, and looking very hospitable. On a scroll which issued from his mouth were the words, From our rags, the best prices given by blank blank of London. The woman in like manner exclaimed, From dripping and house fat, the best prices given by blank blank of London. This man told me that at some times, both in town and country, he did not buy a pound of rags in a week. He had heard the old hands in the trade say that twenty or thirty years back they could gather, note the word generally used for buying, end note, twice and three times as many rags as at present. My informant attributed this change to two causes, depending more upon what he had heard from experienced street buyers than upon his own knowledge. At one time it was common for a mistress to allow her maid-servant to keep a rag-bag, in which all refuse linen and so on was collected for sale for the servant's behoof, a privilege now rarely accorded. The other cause was that working people's wives had less money at their command now than they had formerly, so that instead of gathering a good heap for the man who called on them periodically, they ran to a marine store shop, and sold them by one, two, and three pennyworths at a time. This related to all the things in the street buyer's trade, as well as to rags. I've known this trade ten years or so, said my informant. I was a costermonger before that, and I work coster work now in the summer, and buy things in the winter. Before Christmas is the best time for second-hand trade. When I set out on a country road, and I've gone as far as Guildford and Maidstone and St Albans. I lays in as great a stock of glass and crocks as I can raise money for, or as my donkey or pony, I've had both, but I'm working in an ass now, can drag without distressing him. I swaps my crocks for anything in the second-hand way, and when I've got through them, I buys outright, and so works my way back to London. I bring back what I've bought in the crates and hampers I've had to pack the crocks in, the first year as I started, I got hold of a few very tidy rags, coloured things mostly. The Jew I sold them to when I got home again gave me more than I expected. Oh, Lord, no, not more than I asked. He told me, too, that he'd buy any more I might have, as they was wanted at some town not very far off, where there was a call for them for patching quilts. I haven't heard of a call for any that way since. I get less and less rags every year, I think. 
Well, I can't say what I got last year, perhaps about two stone. No, none of them was woollen. They're things as people's seldom satisfied with the price for, is rags. I've bought muslin window curtains, or frocks as was worn, and good for nothing but rags. But there always seems such a lot, and they weighs so light and comes to so little, that they're sure to be grumbling. I've sometimes bought a lot of old clothes by the lump, or I've swapped crocks for them. And among them there's frequently been things as the Jew in Petticoat Lane, what I sells them to, has put on one side as rags. If I'd offered to give rag prices, them as I got them off would have been offended, or have thought I wanted to cheat. When you get a lot at one go, and specially if it's for crocks, you must make the best of them. This for that, and t'other for t'other. I stay at the beer shops and little inns in the country. Some of the landlords looks very shy at one, if you're a stranger, acause if the police detectives is after anything, they go as hawkers or barrowmen or something that way. Note this statement as to the police is correct, but the man did not know how it came to his knowledge. He had heard of it, he believed. End note. I very seldom slept in a common lodging house. I'd rather sleep on my barrow. Note, I have before had occasion to remark the aversion of the costermonger class to sleep in low lodging houses. These men almost always, and from the necessities of their calling, have rooms of their own in London, so that, I presume, they hate to sleep in public, as the accommodation for repose in many a lodging-house may very well be called. At any rate, the costermongers of all classes of street-sellers, when on their country excursions, resort the least to the lodging-houses. The last round I had in the country, as far as Reading and Pagbourne, I was away about five weeks, I think. I came back a better man by a pound. That was all. I mean, I had thirty shillings worth of things to start with, and when I got back and turned my rags and old metal and things into money, I had fifty shillings. To be sure, Jenny, the ass, and me lived well all the time, and I bought a pair of half-boots and a pair of stockings at Reading, so it weren't so bad. Yes, sir, there's nothing I likes better than a turn into the country. It does one's health good, if it don't turn out so well for profits as it might. My informant, the rag-dealer, belonged to the best order of costermongers. One proof of this was in the evident care which he had bestowed on Jenny, his donkey. There were no loose hairs on her hide, and her harness was clean and whole, and I observed after a pause to transact business on his round that the animal held her head towards her master to be scratched, and was petted with a mouthful of green grass and clover, which the costermonger had in a corner of his vehicle. Taylor's cuttings, which consist of cloth, satin, lining materials, fustian, waistcoatings, silk, and so on, are among the things which the street buyers are the most anxious to become possessed of on a country round. For, as will be easily understood by those who have read the accounts before given of the old clothes exchange and of Petticoat and Rosemary Lanes, they are available for many purposes in London. Dressmakers' cuttings are also a portion of the street buyer's country traffic, but to no great extent, and hardly ever, I am told, unless the street buyer, which is not often the case, be accompanied on his round by his wife. In town, tailors' cuttings are usually sold to the peace brokers, who call or send men round to the shops or workshops for the purpose of buying them, and it is the same with the dressmakers' cuttings. Old metal or broken metal, 
for I heard one appellation used as frequently as the other, is bought by the same description of traders. This trade, however, is prosecuted in town by the street buyers more largely than in the country, and so differs from the rag business. The carriage of old iron bolts and bars is exceedingly cumbersome, nor can metal be packed or stowed away like old clothes or rags. This makes the street buyer indifferent as to the collecting of what I heard one of them call country iron. By metal, the street folk often mean copper, most especially, brass or pewter, in contradistinction to the cheaper substances of iron or lead. In the country, they are most anxious to buy metal, whereas in town, they as readily purchase iron. When the street buyers give merely the worth of any metal by weight to be disposed of, in order to be remelted or re-wrought in some manner by the manufacturers, the following are the average prices. Copper, sixpence per pound. Pewter, fivepence. Brass, fivepence. Iron, six pounds for a penny, and eight pounds for tuppence. A smaller quantity than six pounds is seldom bought. And a penny, or a penny halfpenny per pound for lead. Old zinc is not a metal which comes in the way of the street buyer, nor, as one of them told me with a laugh, old silver. Tin is never bought by weight in the streets. It must be understood that the prices I have mentioned are those given for old or broken metal, valueless unless for reworking. When an old metal article is still available, or may be easily made available, for the use for which it was designed, the street purchase is by the piece, rather than the weight. The broken pans, scuttles, kettles, and so on, concerning one of the uses of which I have quoted Mr. Babbage in page 6 of the present volume, as to the conversion of these worn-out vessels into the light and japanned edgings or clasps, called clamps or clips, by the trunk-makers, and used to protect or strengthen the corners of boxes and packing-cases, are purchased sometimes by the street-buyers, but fall more properly under the head of what constitutes a portion of the stock-in-trade of the street-finder. They are not bought by weight, but so much for the pan, perhaps so much along with other things, a halfpenny, a penny, or occasionally tuppence, and often only a farthing, or three pans for a penny. The uses for these things which the street-buyers have more especially in view are not those mentioned by Mr. Babbage, the trunk-clamps, but the conversion of them into the iron shovels, or strong dustpans sold in the streets. One street artisan supports himself and his family by the making of dustpans from such grimy old vessels. As in the result of my inquiry among the street sellers of old metal, I am of opinion that the street buyers also are not generally mixed up with the receipt of stolen goods. That they may be so to some extent is probable enough in the same proportion, perhaps, as highly respectable tradesmen have been known to buy the goods of fraudulent bankrupts and others. The street buyers are low itinerants, seen regularly by the police and easy to be traced, and therefore, for one reason, cautious. In one of my inquiries among the young thieves and pickpockets in the low lodging houses, I heard frequent accounts of their selling the metal goods they stole to fences, and in one particular instance to the mistress of a lodging-house, who had conveniences for the melting of pewter pots, called cats and kittens by the young thieves, according to the size of the vessels. But I never heard them speak of any connection, or indeed any transactions, with street folk. 
Among the things purchased in great quantities by the street buyers of old metal are keys. The keys so bought are of every size, are generally very rusty, and present every form of manufacture, from the simplest to the most complex wards. On my inquiring how much a number of keys without locks came to be offered for street sale, I was informed that there were often duplicate or triplicate keys to one lock, and that in sales of household furniture, for instance, there were often numbers of odd keys found about the premises and sold in a lump, that locks were often spoiled and unsaleable, wearing out long before the keys. Tuppence a dozen is a usual price for a dozen mixed keys to a street buyer. Bolts are also frequently bought by the street people, as are holdfasts, bed keys and screws, and everything, I was told, which some one or other among the poor is always a-wanting. A little old man, who had been many years a street buyer, gave me an account of his purchases of bottles and glass. This man had been a soldier in his youth, had known, as he said, many ups and downs, and occasionally wheels a barrow, somewhat larger and shallower than those used by masons, from which he vends iron and tin wares, such as cheap gridirons, stands for hand-irons, dustpans, dripping trays, and so on. As he sold these wares, he offered to buy or swap for any second-hand commodities. "'As to the bottle and glass-buying, sir,' he said, "'it's dead and buried in the streets, and in the country, too. I've known the day when I've cleared two pounds in a week by buying old things in a country round. How long was that ago, do you say, sir? Why, perhaps twenty years. Yes, more than twenty. Now I'd hardly pick up odd glass in the street. Note, he called imperfect glasswares odd glass. End note. Oh, I don't know what's brought about such a change, but everything changes. I can't say anything about the duty on glass. No, I never paid any duty on my glass. It ain't likely. I buy glass still, certainly I do. But I think, if I depended on it, I should be wishing myself in the East Indies again, rather than such a poor concern of a business. Damn me if I shouldn't. The last glass bargain I made about two months back, down Limehouse Way, and about the commercial road I cleared sevenpence by. And then I had to wheel what I bought, it was chiefly bottles, about five mile. It's a trade would starve a cat, the buying of old glass. I never bought glass by weight, but I heard of some giving a halfpenny and a penny a pound. I always bought by the piece, from a halfpenny to a shilling, but that's long since, for a bottle, and farthings and halfpennies and higher, and sometimes lower, for wine or other glasses, as was chipped or cracked or damaged, for they could be sold in them days. People's got proud now, I fancy, that's one thing, and must have everything slap. Oh, I do middling. I live by one thing or other, and when I die, there'll just be enough to bury the old man. Note, this is the first street trader I have met with, who made such a statement as to having provided for his interment, though I have heard these men occasionally express repugnance at the thoughts of being buried by the parish. End note. I have a daughter. That's all my family now. She does well as a laundress, and is a real good sort. I have my dinner with her every Sunday. She's a widow without any young ones. I often go to church, both with my daughter and by myself, on Sunday evenings. It does one good. I'm fond of the music and singing too. The sermon I can very seldom make anything off, as I can't hear well if anyone's a good way off me when he's saying anything. I buy a little old metal sometimes, but it's coming to be all up with street-glass people. 
Everybody seems to run with their things to the rag and bottle shops. The same body of traders buy also old sacking, carpeting, and marine bed curtains and window hangings. But the trade in them is sufficiently described in my account of the buying of rags, for it is carried on in the same way, so much per pound, a penny, a penny halfpenny, or tuppence, or so much for the lot. Of bones I have already spoken. They are bought by any street collector with a cart on his round in town at a halfpenny a pound, or three pounds for a penny. But it is a trade on account of the awkwardness of carriage little cared for by the regular street buyers. Men connected with some bone-grinding mill go round with a horse and cart to the knackers and butchers to collect bones, but this is a portion not of street but of the mill-owner's business. These bones are ground for manure, which is extensively used by the agriculturalists, having been first introduced in Yorkshire and Lincolnshire about thirty years ago. The importation of bones is now very great, more than three times as much as it was twenty years back. The value of the foreign bones imported is estimated at upwards of £300,000 yearly. They are brought from South America, along with hides, from Germany, Holland and Belgium. The men who most care to collect bones in the streets of London are old and infirm, and they barter toys for them with poor children. For those children sometimes gather bones in the streets and put them on one side, or get them from dust holes for the sake of exchanging them for a plaything, or indeed for selling them to any shopkeeper, and many of the rag and bottle tradesmen buy bones. The toys most used for this barter are paper windmills. These toy barterers, when they have a few pence, will buy bones of children or any others if they cannot become possessed of them otherwise. But the carriage of the bones is a great obstacle to much being done in this business. In the regular way of street buying, such as I have described it, there are about a hundred men in London and the suburbs. Some buy only during a portion of the year, and none perhaps, except in the way of barter, the year round. They are chiefly of the costermonger class. Some of the street buyers, however, have been carmen's servants, or connected with trades in which they had the care of a horse and cart and so become habituated to a street life. There are still many other ways in which the commerce in refuse and the second-hand street trade is supplied. As the windmill seller for bones, so will the puppet show man for old bottles, or broken tablespoons, or almost any old trifle, allow children to regale their eyes on the beauties of his exhibition. The trade expenditure of the street buyers it is not easy to estimate, their calling is so mixed with selling and bartering that very probably not one among them can tell what he expends in buying as a separate branch of his business. If 100 men expend 15 shillings each weekly in the purchase of rags, old metal and so on, and if this trade be prosecuted for 30 weeks of the year, we find £2,250 so expended. The profits of the buyers range from 20 to 100%. Of the rag and bottle and the marine store shops. The principal purchasers of any refuse or worn-out articles are the proprietors of the rag and bottle shops. Some of these men make a good deal of money, and not unfrequently unite with the business the letting out of vans for the conveyance of furniture, or for pleasure excursions, to such places as Hampton Court. The stench in these shops is positively sickening. 
Here, in a small apartment, may be a pile of rags, a sack full of bones, the many varieties of grease and kitchen stuff, corrupting an atmosphere which, even without such accompaniments, would be too close. The windows are often crowded with bottles, which exclude the light, while the floor and shelves are thick with grease and dirt. The inmates seem unconscious of this foulness, and one comparatively wealthy man, who showed me his horses, the stable being like a drawing-room compared to his shop, in speaking of the many deaths among his children, could not conjecture to what cause it could be owing. This indifference to dirt and stench is the more remarkable as many of the shopkeepers have been gentlemen's servants, and were therefore once accustomed to cleanliness and order. The door-posts and windows of the rag and bottle shops are often closely placarded, and the front of the house is sometimes one glaring colour, blue or red, so that the place may be at once recognised, even by the illiterate, as the red house or the blue house. If these men are not exactly street buyers, they are street billers, continually distributing handbills, but more especially before Christmas. The more aristocratic, however, now send round cards, and to the following purport. Number blank. The blank house in blank's rag, bottle and kitchen stuff warehouse, blank street, blank town, where you can obtain gold and silver to any amount, established blank. The highest price given for all the undermentioned articles, namely, wax and sperm pieces, kitchen stuff and so on, wine and beer bottles, eau de cologne, soda water, doctor's bottles and so on, white linen rags, bones, files and broken flint glass, old copper, brass, pewter and so on, lead, iron, zinc, steel and so on and so on, old horsehair, mattresses and so on, old books, waste paper and so on, all kinds of coloured drags. The utmost value given for all kinds of wearing apparel. Furniture and lumber of every description bought and full value given at his miscellaneous warehouse. Articles sent for. Some content themselves with sending handbills to the houses in their neighbourhood, which many of the cheap printers keep in type, so that an alteration in the name and address is all which is necessary for any customer. I heard that suspicions were entertained that it was to some of these traders that the facilities with which servants could dispose of their pilferings might be attributed, and that a stray silver spoon might enhance the weight and price of kitchen stuff. It is not pertaining to my present subject to enter into the consideration of such a matter, and I might not have alluded to it had not I found the regular street buyers fond of expressing an opinion of the indifferent honesty of this body of traders. But my readers may have remarked how readily the street people have, on several occasions, justified, as they seem to think, their own delinquencies by quoting what they declared were as great and as frequent delinquencies on the part of shopkeepers. I know very well, said an intelligent street seller on one occasion, that two wrongs can never make a right, but tricks that shopkeepers practice to grow rich upon we must practice, just as they do, to live at all. As long as they give short weight and short measure, the streets can't help doing the same. The rag and bottle and the marine store shops are in many instances but different names for the same description of business. The chief distinction appears to be this. The marine store shopkeepers proper 
do not meddle with what is a very principal object of traffic with the rag and bottle man, the purchase of dripping, as well as of every kind of refuse in the way of fat or grease. The marine store man, too, is more miscellaneous in his wares than his contemporary of the rag and bottle store, as the former will purchase any of the smaller articles of household furniture, old tea caddies, knife boxes, fire irons, books, pictures, draughts and backgammon boards, bird cages, Dutch clocks, cups and saucers, tools and brushes. The rag and bottle tradesman will readily purchase any of these things to be disposed of as old metal or waste paper, but his brother tradesman buys them to be resold and reused for the purposes for which they were originally manufactured. When furniture, however, is the staple of one of these second-hand storehouses, the proprietor is a furniture broker and not a marine store dealer. If, again, the dealer in these stores confine his business to the purchase of old metals, for instance, he is classed as an old metal dealer, collecting it or buying it off collectors, for sale to iron founders, coppersmiths, brass founders and plumbers. In perhaps the majority of instances, there is little or no distinction between the establishments I have spoken of. The dolly business is common to both, but most common to the marine store dealer, and of it I shall speak afterwards. These shops are exceedingly numerous. Perhaps in the poorer and smaller streets, they are more numerous even than the chandler's or the beer seller's places. At the corner of a small street, both in town and the nearer suburbs, will frequently be found the chandler's shop for the sale of small quantities of cheese, bacon, groceries and so on to the poor. Lower down may be seen the beer sellers, and in the same street there is certain to be one rag and bottle or marine store shop, very often two, and not unfrequently another in some adjacent court. I was referred to the owner of a marine store shop as to a respectable man, keeping a store of the best class. Here the counter or table, or whatever it is to be called, for it was somewhat nondescript, by an ingenious contrivance could be pushed out into the street, so that in bad weather the goods which were at other times exposed in the street could be drawn inside without trouble. The glass frames of the window were removable and were placed on one side in the shop, for in the summer an open casement seemed to be preferred. This is one of the remaining old trade customs still seen in London, for previously to the great fire in 1666 and the subsequent rebuilding of the city, Shops with open casements and protected from the weather by overhanging eaves or by a sloping wooden roof were general. The house I visited was an old one and abounded in closets and recesses. The fireplace, which apparently had been large, was removed and the space was occupied with a mass of old iron of every kind. All this was destined for the furnace of the iron founder, wrought iron being preferred for several of the requirements of that trade. A chest or range of very old drawers with defaced or worn-out labels, once a grocer's or a chemist's, was stuffed in every drawer with old horseshoe nails, valuable for steel manufacturers, and horse and donkey shoes, brass knobs, glass stoppers, small bottles, among them a number of the cheap cast heart's horn bottles, broken pieces of brass and copper, small tools, such as shoemakers and harness-makers awls, punches, gimlets, plain irons, hammerheads, and so on, odd dominoes, dice, and backgammon men, 
lock escutcheons, keys, and the smaller sort of locks, especially padlocks. In fine, any small thing which could be stowed away in such a place. In one corner of the shop had been thrown, the evening before, a mass of old iron, then just bought. It consisted of a number of screws of different lengths and substance, of broken bars and rails, of the odds and ends of the cogged wheels of machinery, broken up or worn out, of odd-looking spikes and rings and links, all heaped together and scarcely distinguishable. These things had all to be assorted, some to be sold for re-use in their then form, the others to be sold that they might be melted and cast into other forms. The floor was intricate with hampers of bottles, heaps of old boots and shoes, old desks and work-boxes, pictures, all modern, with and without frames, waste paper, the most of it of quarto, and some larger-sized, soiled or torn, and strung closely together in weights of from two to seven pounds, and a fireproof safe, stuffed with old fringes, tassels, and other upholstery goods, worn and discoloured. The miscellaneous wares were carried out into the street, and ranged by the doorposts, as well as in front of the house. In some small outhouses in the yard were piles of old iron and tin pans, and of the broken or separate parts of harness. From the proprietor of this establishment I had the following account. Quote, I've been in the business more than a dozen years. Before that I was an auctioneer's, and then a furniture broker's porter. I wasn't brought up to any regular trade, but just to jobbing about, and a bad trade it is, as all trades is that ain't regular employ for a man. I had some money when my father died. He kept a chandler's shop, and I bought a marine. Note, an elliptical form of speech among these traders. End note. I gave ten pounds for the stock, and five pounds for entrance and goodwill, and agreed to pay what rents and rates was due. It was a smallish stock then, for the business had been neglected, but I have no reason to be sorry for my bargain, though it might have been better. There's lots taken in about goodwills, but perhaps not so many in my way of business, because we're rather fly to a dodge. It is a confined sort of life, but there's no help for that. Why, as to my way of trade, you'd be surprised what different sorts of people come to my shop. I don't mean the regular hands, but the chance-comers. I've had men dressed like gentlemen, and no doubt they was respectable when they was sober, bring two or three books, or a nice cigar-case, or anything that don't show in their pockets, and say, when as drunk as blazes, Give me what you can for this. I want it sold for a particular purpose. That particular purpose was more drink, I should say, and I've known the same men come back in less than a week and buy what they'd sold me at a little extra, and be glad if I had it by me still. Oh, we sees a deal of things in this way of life. Yes, poor people run to such as me. I've known them come with such things as teapots and old hair mattresses and flock beds, and then I'm sure they're hard up, reduced for a meal. I don't like buying big things like mattresses, though I do purchase them sometimes. Some of these sellers are as keen as Jews at a bargain. Others seem only anxious to get rid of the things and have hold of some bit of money anyhow. Yes, sir, I've known their hands tremble to receive the money, and mostly the women's. They haven't been used to it, I know, when that's the case. Perhaps they comes to sell me what the pawns won't take in, or what they wouldn't like to be seen selling to any of the men that goes about buying things in the street. Why, I've bought everything 
At sales by auction there's often lots made up of different things, and they goes for very little. I buy of people too that come to me, and of the regular hands that supply such shops as mine. I sell retail, and I sell to hawkers. I sell to anybody, for gentlemen'll come into my shop to buy anything that's took their fancy in passing. Yes, I've bought old oil paintings. I've heard of some being bought by people in my way as have turned out stunners, and was sold for a hundred pounds or more, and cost perhaps half a crown or only a shilling. I never experienced such a thing myself. There's a good deal of gammon about it. Well, it's hardly possible to say anything about a scale of prices. I give tuppence for an old tin, or metal teapot, or an old saucepan, and sometimes, two days after I bought such a thing, I've sold it for threepence to the man or woman I've bought it off. I'll sell cheaper to them than to anybody else, because they come to me in two ways, both as sellers and buyers. For pictures I've given from threepence to one shilling. I fancy they're among the last things some sorts of poor people which is a bit fanciful, parts with. I've bought them off hawkers, but often I refuse them, as they've given more than I could get. Pictures requires a judge. Some brought to me was published by newspapers, and them sort of people. Waste paper I buy as it comes. I can't read very much, and don't understand about books. I take the backs off and weighs them, and gives a penny, and a penny halfpenny and tuppence a pound, and there's an end. I sell them at about a farthing a pound profit, or sometimes less, to men as we calls waste men. It's a poor part of our business, but the books and paper takes up little room, and then it's clean and can be stowed anywhere, and is a sure sale. Well, the people as sells waste to me is not such as can read, I think. I don't know what they is. Perhaps they're such as obtains permission of the books and what not, after the death of old folks, and gets them out of the way as quick as they can. I know nothing about what they are. Last week a man in black, he didn't seem rich, came into my shop and looked at some old books and said, Have you any black lead? He didn't speak plain, and I could hardly catch him. I said, No, sir, I don't sell black lead, but you'll get it at number 27. But he answered, Not black lead, but black letter, speaking very pointed. I said, No, and I haven't a notion what he meant. Metal, copper, that I give fivepence or fivepence halfpenny for, I can sell to the merchants from sixpence halfpenny to eightpence the pound. It's no great trade, for they'll often throw things out of the lot and say they're not metal. Sometimes it would hardly be a farthing in a shilling if it weren't for the draught in the scales. When we buys metal, we don't notice the quarters of the pounds. All under a quarter goes for nothing. When we buys iron, all under half pounds counts nothing. So when we buys by the pound and sells by the hundredweight, there's a little help from this, which we calls the draught. Glass bottles of all qualities I buys at three for a halfpenny, and sometimes four, up to tuppence apiece for good stouts, bottle porter vessels, but very seldom indeed tuppence, unless it's something very prime and big like the old quarts, note, quart bottles, end note. I seldom meddles with decanters, it's very few decanters as is offered to me, either little or big, and I'm shy of them when they are. There's such a change in glass. Them as buys in the streets brings me next to nothing now to buy. They both brought and bought a lot ten year back and later. I never was in the street trade in second hand, but it's not what it was. I sell in the streets when I put things outside and know all about the trade. It ain't a fortnight back since a smart female servant 
in slap-up black, sold me a basket full of doctor's bottles. I knew her master, and he hadn't been buried a week before she come to me, and she said, Mrs. is glad to get rid of them, for they makes her cry. They often say their missuses sends things, and that they're not on no account to take less than so much. That's true at times, and at times it ain't. I gives from a penny halfpenny to threepence a dozen for good new bottles. I'm sure I can't say what I give for other odds and ends. Just as they're good, bad, or indifferent. It's a queer trade. Well, I pay my way, but I don't know what I clear a week. About two pounds, I dare say. But then there's rent, rates, and taxes to pay, and other expenses. End quote. The dolly system is peculiar to the rag and bottle man, as well as to the marine store dealer. The name is derived from the black wooden doll in white apparel, which generally hangs dangling over the door of the marine store shops, or of the rag and bottles, but more frequently the last mentioned. This type of the business is sometimes swung over their doors by those who are not dolly shopkeepers. The dolly shops are essentially pawn shops, and pawn shops for the very poorest. There are many articles which the regular pawnbrokers decline to accept as pledges. Among these things are blankets, rugs, clocks, flock beds, common pictures, translated boots, mended trousers, kettles, saucepans, trays, and so on. Such things are usually styled lumber. A poor person driven to the necessity of raising a few pence, and unwilling to part finally with his lumber, goes to the dollyman, and for the merest trifle advanced, deposits one or other of the articles I have mentioned, or something similar. For an advance of tuppence or threepence, a halfpenny a week is charged, but the charge is the same if the pledge be redeemed next day. If the interest be paid at the week's end, another penny is occasionally advanced, and no extra charge exacted for interest. If the interest be not paid at the week or fortnight's end, the article is forfeited, and is sold at a large profit by the dolly shop man. For fourpence or sixpence advanced, the weekly interest is a penny. For ninepence it is a penny halfpenny. For a shilling it is tuppence, and tuppence on each shilling up to five shillings, beyond which sum the dolly will rarely go. In fact, he will rarely advance as much. Two poor Irish flower girls, whom I saw in the course of my inquiry into that part of street traffic, had in the winter very often to pledge the rug under which they slept at a dolly shop in the morning for sixpence, in order to provide themselves with stock money to buy forced violets, and had to redeem it on their return in the evening, when they could, for sevenpence. Thus sixpence a week was sometimes paid for a daily advance of that sum. Some of these illicit pawnbrokers even give tickets. This incidental mention of what is really an immense trade, as regards the number of pledges, is all that is necessary under the present head of inquiry. But I purpose entering into this branch of the subject fully and minutely when I come to treat of the class of distributors. The iniquities to which the poor are subject are positively monstrous. A halfpenny a day interest on a loan of tuppence is at the rate of 7,280% per annum. End of section 17